This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies, from healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution. Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Advice Show. From advising clients to practice management, this podcast will give you UK and global insights into the financial planning profession. I'm Chloe, a reporter at New Model Advisor, and today we are talking about cybersecurity. Um, So last week, New Model Advisor revealed that the Chartered Insurance Institute had been targeted by a cyber attack, um, and the hackers were able to access advisors' data, including their contact details, addresses, and dates of birth. And this summer, NMA also revealed that the fund custodian Mainspring had also suffered a data breach, um, and the ransomware attack was targeted at the advisor's work information, investors' personal information, as well as login credentials for both advisors and clients. In either of those cases, financial data was not accessed, but the fact that hackers can access that personal information um, is, is quite concerning. And in um, Next12's latest report on the health of the advice industry, advice firms cited cybersecurity as the fourth most important business threat that they face. So to talk about cybersecurity and what financial services firms can do to protect themselves, um, I'm joined by Aaron Kane, cybersecurity consultant at Altus. Um, so Aaron, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, how are you doing? It's a definite pleasure. I'm doing well. Great. And so to start off, can you um, explain to me what your job consists of? What does a what does a cybersecurity consultant do? <laughs> cybersecurity, <clears throat> whether you're consulting, whether you're working on programs, in many ways, it is a jack of all trades, master of hopefully a few <clears throat> type issue where you want to make sure that you're aware of what a customer is doing, aware of what an industry is facing, aware of changes in the marketplace, and then you get all of the joys and fun of adversarial tactics. So you're trying to picture the people who are targeting your particular customers, your marketplace, and understand what the next trend is going to be. You're always trying to at least keep up, if not hopefully, be one step ahead of what's coming in. Unfortunately, that is a very tall order in today's marketplace. Yeah, absolutely. And so can you walk me through the sort of landscape of, of cybersecurity threats that financial services firms would face? So in the in the intro, I mentioned a ransom, ransomware attack, for example. What other sort of risks are there in, the, in this um, space? Historically, the ransomware attacks, what everybody tends to fear and focus on were the areas where somebody gets into your system, they encrypt things so that you can't use it, and then you either pay them for a key or you try to bring your business back. The problem that comes in with any kind of attack along that line is basically manifold. You have the actual damage itself. So you're out of business during the time that you're fixing whatever it is that's going on the impact that goes with it. If you have to pay a ransom, how do you do it? Many countries make it quite difficult to pay a ransom because you're then quote-unquote funding terrorism. There are other things in terms of reputational damage. If you think about some of the ones that we've heard about over the past couple of years where banks, for instance, have been hit and brought down, 
all of a sudden they have the impact of people who can't make payments, can't receive their salaries, can't move their money. And when you move into financial services, you're dealing very specifically with other people's money. And that's a very touchy subject. In addition to ransomware, there are also denial of service attacks. So you have companies that decide that rather than trying to get into your system, all they want to do is stop everybody in the world from communicating with you except them. So once again, you have an outage, your systems are still safe, but you can't do business. So the impact continues on that way until that can be stopped. You also have then the types of attacks that come in and they don't necessarily want to encrypt your data or destroy your data. What they want to do is they want to snoop. And this has become much more prevalent recently where somebody will get a piece of software into a system. That piece of software will then hibernate and periodically look and see what it can find until it triggers at some point in time and tries to get as much data out of the system as possible. Right. Okay. And so which financial services firms, what type of, so you mentioned banks, but what type of um, organizations are the most sort of vulnerable? Which ones are particularly targeted? Obviously, Banks are a juicy target just because they're so dependent on their customers. Insurance, frankly, is also a secondary one because, once again, if I can get to the customers in any type of insurance organization, if I'm working through brokers, if I'm working through other companies that work with, that information can lead me then further into other accounts that might be connected. If you think about stock trading funds and others like that, in addition to the actual data of the firm itself, how do you get your money in? How do you get your money out? All of these particular entities have links to external places. So in addition to the company itself, <clears throat> you have all of the exposure of anybody who's talking. We call that basically a supplier chain. So just because somebody in the center of it is compromised, you then have to worry about all the people that rely on or all the other companies that rely on the information that's within that supplier themselves. Right. OK. And what about a small, a smaller firm, something like a financial advice firm? Obviously, they would be less of a target, but then they also have less resources, right? Once again, they're not less of a target. And this is the issue. People have learned that if I can find that one compromise on the outside, it used to be that in all of our organizations, we had this big stone wall around the outside of the company. Pandemic came along, new ways of working, and that wall that was impenetrable before has become a net. So there's all kinds of holes that people can come through. When I'm talking about a financial services advisor, that is just absolute plum picking for a hacker because they're in business to be in business. They do what they do extremely well but they might not have enough resource to be able to take that next step up and have a dedicated team that is protecting all of their information. Quite often, they'll rely on people like their cloud providers. If I put it into Amazon, if I put it into Azure, I expect them to keep it safe. And unfortunately, that expectation is only partly usable or viable. Right. Okay. And so those firms that are targets, but then they have those resources to protect themselves, what can they actually do to, to actually protect themselves? What kind of resources do they have available to them? There are a number of organizations. Altus is one. Uh, what we do is we have conversations with companies whereby we come in, we look at the way that they're doing business, 
and we provide advice, plans. We give them ways that they can test and see if they actually have a problem. There are external organizations, uh, one of which is, for instance, the Southwest Cyber Resilience Center. They also provide <clears throat> advice, cons consultancy, and services to companies that don't have a large budget, don't have a dedicated resource. And these efforts that we're doing, there are a number of other providers as well. Uh, we were recently at the Lloyd's Lab cyber event, and there are a number of companies that are providing advice, conversations, a network of people that the, everyone can talk to. We're not talking about hiring consultants in and having long-term projects. We're talking about getting the conversation going, understanding where you might be exposed, and how other people are mitigating these things. A lot can be learned without having huge teams of people to do it. And it also helps us leverage the scarce resources that we have in the cybersecurity field into more situations where we can help people. Right. Okay. And, but overall, would you say that firms, financial services firms are taking cybersecurity risks seriously enough? Do you think they should be thinking about it more? The fear is growing. And unfortunately, as the fear grows, people have a tendency to make, I don't want to say strange decisions, but sometimes it's reactive decisions. Ooh, uh, somebody got hacked. I've got to go do something. We ran into a customer recently where we were having the conversation and because people around them were being attacked, they were spending money like water defending against things that were not necessarily their primary problem. One of their biggest problems was they had simple passwords, and yet they'd spent all this money on huge amounts of software and tools and this and that and services coming in from the outside with an eight-character password. It just It's these kinds of conversations that tend to make things much more doable, much more visible, and are much more effective from a company perspective the real thing that we're trying to get the word out for is to say, listen to people, talk to people, have the conversation, see what's going on. It doesn't have to consume your life because there's a lot of us doing what we're doing and we're willing to share, willing to help, willing to make things better in the marketplace. Mm. So is it sometimes the most kind of simple step, like changing a password that can make the biggest difference? Absolutely. Simple things. How often do you actually perform maintenance? Have you checked to see whether or not you have any kind of vulnerability within? What are your policies like? And are the policies understandable? This is another big problem in the cybersecurity industry. As experts, we think we've simplified the advice. <clears throat> to us, it's simple. To somebody who's not a cybersecurity geek <laughs> and has a couple of years of chasing these things down, it's gobbledygook. And again, that's one of the things that we're doing in particular as we deliver these services is we're simplifying it, bringing it down, making it understandable to business people, business leaders, the people who are actually on the coalface doing what they're doing so that they know what it is that we're talking about. And uh, some statistics show that we're actually being relatively effective at that now in the European and the UK marketplace. Right. Okay. And so for firms who um, have been targeted and unfortunately have not been able to defend themselves, it seems to me like one of the biggest challenge after that happens is communication with, with people that have been affected, right? So how should firms that have been targeted by a ransomware attack or anything of the sort 
communicate that to you know the, their members that have been affected or, or or anything like that the biggest thing that you have to do and again this is one mistake that some people have a tendency to make it's a human instinct to say oh something's happened i just not me mate it's it's don't want to tell anybody don't want to admit and that is absolutely the wrong way to go about things when somebody is the victim of a ransomware attack or denial of service attack that needs to be communicated to the people who are within the organization so the direct customers as well as the suppliers who are around the outside because they're also now part of that attack vector if you don't communicate the penalties just continue to escalate when it finally does all come out in the wash and it's that kind of avoiding it, not doing it, not taking care of it that causes the biggest amount of damage. And that's one of the things that the hackers rely on is that you're going to be so scared, so panicked that you're going to make more mistakes and that people won't realize and they'll have other opportunities to move out, even if you're not the richest plum on the tree that they're looking at. Right. Yeah. And is do you think that firm's ability to protect themselves has is evolving as rapidly as hackers' ability to to make you know to make their attacks more sophisticated. Are we? Is it kind of a is it a fair fight, so to speak? It's not a fair fight. However, there is an evolving way of protecting yourself against a more advanced or a more inventive adversary. It used to be that the wall was there, we kept everybody out, and that was the ultimate goal. Then it became, <clears throat> if we can't keep them out, then we want to try to make sure that we spot them as quickly as we can spot them. Then people started to realize, just because somebody gets into your system doesn't mean that they're going to actually achieve anything if they can't get the data out. And that's one of the key ways that we're finding now in today's marketplace that we are able to limit the impact or the damage that somebody can do. These programs that sit and hibernate and snoop and try to collect data and move it, if they can't get the data out of the system, eventually we will catch them. Eventually we will find them. They might be very, very sophisticated, but if you're paying attention to what's going on in terms of your outward communications and stopping things that shouldn't be there, then you can mitigate or minimize that damage. Mm, right. I was also wondering about the the sort of impact of, of COVID on, on that cyber kind of crime landscape. You know, is, has that been a, a driver for more sophisticated attacks or what, what's been the, the change there, if any? What it's done is it's presented different opportunity. Like I said before, a hacker will go after a company because they're the low hanging fruit. They're the ones who haven't patched their systems. They're the ones who are feeding into the organizations that are really the ones that make them salivate. These are the places I want to be. As we've driven people out during COVID and now with the new method of protecting, again, I can't say it any other way, protecting the environment by allowing people not to commute back and forth to remote work, to do things like that. What it's done is it's increased that surface that a company has to work from. If you're dealing with a company laptop, then the company still has some control over how somebody's coming in. But the new policies of things like bring your own device. <clears throat> if you're using your personal mobile phone to do customer calls, to access uh, systems within the corporation, and oh, by the way, I do hand that off to my teenager and they play Minecraft or something else on it at the time, 
are you separated? Are things there? New policies present, <clears throat> or new ways of working present new attack surfaces in areas where people are not necessarily as cautious as they would be with a corporate device. Right. Okay. I see. And so for um, someone that is listening to this podcast and is kind of concerned about the the cybersecurity threats that they might face, what are some of the steps they need to follow? What are some of the questions they need to ask themselves about how actually how protected they are and how safe they are? Okay. Let's start off. The fundamentals, the basics are still oldies but goodies. Make sure that your systems are patched and that anything that accesses your system is appropriately updated. So if you're going to allow people to use their own devices, your policies need to help them know how to keep their phones, their tablets, their personal PCs, etc., and what level it's going to be at. Secondarily, you need to make sure that people understand where they're coming in from. A home network is okay. A home network with a virtual private network around it is much more secure. If they're going to be out and allowed to travel, so <clears throat> we can work remotely, so we like that beach in Bali that has a nice Wi-Fi signal on it, fair enough. But make sure that people understand how to spot what network they should be on, how they should connect, and that those are, are secure and communicated. Internally, make sure that your systems are set so that if somebody gets in, everything there is contained until you know that it should be able to go out. This includes things like emails, data transfers, all these things need to be checked. And it doesn't have to be floods and floods and floods of data. It is a matter of there are tools from all kinds of systems that will look at this and give you the anomalies that come up. And all you have to deal with is the anomalies, not the flood of data that goes with it. Finally, you have to have that conversation with your people and basically say, you can't rely on the fact that it's our responsibility to be cyber secure. Cyber security is everybody's responsibility. And if you make a mistake, we're not going to kick you out the door and pile on top of you and blame. You've got to get away from that blame culture. Otherwise, if somebody makes a human mistake, that human tendency is, yeah, oh, I wasn't there. I was at the coffee machine when it happened. <clears throat> and it just gets worse instead of saying, oh, I've done something wrong and immediately being able to tell somebody, look, I've done something wrong. How do we fix this? So a supportive organization like that is much more protected. Final thing, look at the people who are around you. Remember, the hackers are going to go after the weakest ones first because it's the old race with the lion thing. I don't have to be faster than the lion. I just have to be faster than you so the lion gets you first. Mm. Right. Yeah, of course. Especially because the clients... Kind of a cruel analogy. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but a useful one. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I think it's interesting as well because a lot of, and a lot of um, advice clients will be a little bit older, much less tech savvy. So obviously there would be kind of easy targets, right? Um, so It isn't a case and it does bring up a secondary problem. And that is... This comes back to the situation I was talking about before. You have a customer with an eight-character password. It used to be that that was the epitome of everything that was needed. In this customer, a lot of their clients, prospects, people who use the platform are older people, telling them that they're going to have to create a 13-character password of sufficient complexity is an uphill battle, but it's a battle that has to be fought. And it has to be fought with plain language that people can understand why, what the benefit is going to be. 
if they go through the pain of making those changes. Right. And um, so my final question, I was wondering if you could talk to me a bit about what you think, how you think the cybersecurity landscape is going to evolve as a cybersecurity consultant and what are the, the things that the next sort of frontier, so to speak? Right at the moment, one of the, one of the biggest things that everybody fears are the state attacks. North Korea hacked my system. You know, I'm a McDonald's franchise and I went down, it must be China or North Korea or Russia or... It's the one that gives us that fear, that thrill, that, oh, my heavens, the world is coming to an end. In reality, what happens is, is you have these major state actors and they put something out and it's successful for a period of time. People begin to protect against it. We get inoculated against these viruses. So they take that code and they put it onto the dark web and they rent it out. So anybody can go on and they can say, ooh. I like that. I'll take that. They purchase it and they make their own. Or now there's new ransomware as a service. And this is becoming much more prolific than it was before, even down to the point where you can go on to those sites. You can subscribe to the service, run it from your bedroom in leafy England and just target everybody in the world and see who you can come through. They will handle the attack. They will handle the penetration. They will handle the exfiltration. They'll handle the payment and they'll take a percentage and then pay the rest into your bank account. Uh, It is truly that kind of corporate model. Unfortunately, right at the moment, the one thing that really comes up, conflict drives state actors to do things more and more aggressively the defense against those aggressions become faster, but that software doesn't go away. It it morphs and it becomes these extra services. As the difference between the haves and the have-nots grows greater and greater in the economic conditions that we're in, more and more of those people sitting, like I say, in their bedroom somewhere running these things, they may not have to have more than one or two successful hits in a month. And they've paid for not only themselves, but everybody else in their family to have a nice vacation somewhere or to subsist. And they have nothing else to do but to run these things 24 hours a day, seven days a week, as hard as they can, because that's what produces the money. So it's going to be more things coming up like that. Not necessarily a very sophisticated person at the end of it. In some cases, it's that child with a gun scenario you've got somebody with relatively little intent but with a really powerful package that's going to do a heck of a lot of damage to something like that and i've got a feeling that's going to increase that's not a super hopeful note to end on but (laughs) i mean you know not not every podcast needs to end with a hopeful note you know sometimes it has to be realistic well at the moment (laughs) it's it's not a hopeless cause in any way shape or form it is something that once you understand what the adversary is doing, then you can start planning against it. We can start seeing, and perhaps we can get to that point where we can get network providers and such to start shutting down people who are doing these things instead of everybody going, oh, yeah, not in our territory, not our problem. So there is a lot more collaboration that can go on internally. Like I said, statistics show in the States, many more small businesses are hacked than are hacked over here because we have that tendency to talk together, to work together, to put these things and the available resources to go with them. Mm-hmm. So, Right. Okay. 
Well, Aaron, thank you so much for um, giving us this really interesting overview and also for the actual tangible tips for our listeners. I think that'll be um, really um, useful for them. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for being here and thank you everybody for listening. Um, if you'd like to get in contact with us about this episode, we're on Twitter at New Model Advisor, or you can get in contact with me directly. I'm cmelly, M-E-L-E-Y at citywire.co.uk. Um, thank you everyone. Thanks, Aaron. And we'll see you next week. You're welcome, Claire. This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies, from healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution. Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk.